Well, we're in uh, Genesis chapter 17. I don't think we finished that, did we? Last time. I'm not sure how far we even got into the chapter. I I teach so many classes, I'm never quite sure I should, I often mark it, but I didn't mark it. Um, just uh, uh, got started in it. Okay, Uh, good. I didn't think we had gotten into it very far. Um, Real quick, just to review a couple of things. Uh, The most important thing to remember always when you study Abraham is in the Bible is the covenant. And the covenant promises God made to Abraham was threefold. What is it? Land, seed, blessing. If just always remember it that way, land, seed, and blessing. Genesis 12 is where the first promise, uh, first uh, iteration of the promise is made. It's repeated again and again and again. We saw it in chapter 15, uh, and uh, it's a very important chapter. And then it, we saw it in 16. Now here in 17 is where God institutes a sign of this covenant. Um. Can I think with you just a little bit about that? And I, I point this out in in the book, too, because I think that's very important. The th- reason I called the book A Covenant People is God is depicted in the Bible as a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He makes a promise, and you can bank he's going to com- fulfill that promise. And every time he makes a promise in the Bible, there is always a sign that goes with that. If you remember, it's been a while since we studied that, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 9, God made a promise after the flood to Noah. Remember, I will never destroy the earth with water again. What was the sign of that promise? The rainbow. Now here, God has made a promise, here meaning where we are in Genesis, to Abraham, that out of you... Abraham is going to come people as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you land. Last time in chapter 15, we saw the boundaries of that land from the Euphrates River to the river of Egypt. And then in you, all the nations will be blessed. Well, here in chapter 17, God institutes a sign of that covenant. Last time we talked about how God cut that covenant. And we looked at that ancient ritual. I hope you remember that, where he cuts animals in half. Abram does that. And God himself walks between the animals. It's an ancient, ancient way of cutting a covenant. And it's God who's binding and keeping the promise. So it's an unconditional promise. So what's the sign? Well, the sign of that covenant is circumcision. I want to talk about why it is in just a minute. Let's just fast forward real quickly because I think this is helpful. God's going to make up a covenant with the people of Israel. It's called the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant or the Covenant of the Law. What was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant? The Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath. And then, we'll, I'll keep going, the sign of the Davidic Covenant, series of promises God made to David, is the throne. And then we will not get to that in this book, the book of of Genesis. But God makes one final covenant. It's called the New Covenant. Very, very important because it's all about redemption. And the sign of that covenant is the Holy Spirit that he sent. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So it's important to me, and I think this is how the Bible presents it, 
God presents himself as a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He makes promises, and he always keeps his promises. And he gives us a sign that every time we hear that sign, read about that sign, see evidence of that sign, it reminds us, my God has made a promise to me. So here is the promise, uh, the uh, sign of circumcision. So let's get started with chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now, that Im- that's important because we left at chapter 16, where the story of Ishmael is introduced, tragically where Abram disobeys God and listens to the counsel of his wife and impregnates Hagar, who produces Ishmael, which is the origin of the Arab-Israeli conflict <laughs> in a simplistic way. But there, Abram was 86, now he's 99, still no son. He has waited 24 years for the promise, still no son. He said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, I don't always do this, but this is kind of important because the title for God Almighty in Hebrew, is El Shaddai. Have you ever heard of that before? There's, there's a real famous worship course that uses the, the title of God. I think Amy Grant was the first one who, who made it. It's been remade many, many times. But this is the title, God Almighty, is El, one of the names or titles of God, Shaddai. It focuses on the power of God. Yahweh, another title or name of God, focuses on his self-existent, self-sufficient being. Here, El Shaddai, God Almighty, the powerful one. Walk before me, be blameless, and I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, that's evidence of worship, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And shall be the father, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means father, but your name shall be called Abraham, which means father of many or father of a multitude. This is a name change. So the first the first piece of this, in terms of this renewal of the covenant, reminder of what God's promised to him is I'm going to change your name from Abram, father, Avram. Maybe you've heard that, Avram. That's a very common Hebrew name, or it's even a proper noun, Avram, father, to Abraham, father of many, father of a multitude. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the, their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, there is one important phrase there that I call your attention to in verse 8, because all that God said in the verses I just reread has just restating the covenant promise. This isn't the first time we've read this. It's just restating it. But I want you to notice something about verse 8. I'm giving you the land, land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. 
That's a very important phrase. How long is everlasting? It's a long time. So, you know, when, when this, is, this is one of the massive challenges of the 21st century. You have the Jews back in their land. They've been there since 1948. They have reestablished their authority. The world recognizes it. The United Nations recognizes it. It's an established nation state. But it's very small. If you go back to the previous chapter, the dimensions of the land grant God gave to Abraham, my goodness, Israel isn't even close to that. So you have the Palestinians who had been in the land after the Ottoman Empire had established control of it. How long does how back how far back does their claim go? Uh, it depends on how you look at it, a couple hundred years. How far back does the land claim of the Jews to this land? 4,000 years. Why? Because God made this promise. God promised Abraham, your descendants, I will give this land. And as you will see, as we get a little bit further into the book, they will always have that land promised to them. But if they want to live in the land and be blessed in the land, what must they do? They must walk with God which is what the Mosaic Covenant's all about. The Abrahamic Covenant is the promise. The Mosaic Covenant is how they are to walk with God. And if they choose not to walk with God, the sacrifices which atone for their sin, etc., will God discipline them? Yes. Could that discipline involve them being driven out of the land? Yes. Does God promise to always bring them back to the land? Yes. And if you look at the, this is, I'm really zooming ahead, but this summarizes the Old Testament. The major and minor prophets, there are four major prophets, 12 minor prophets, the big chunk of the Old Testament, keep saying to the children of Israel, walk with me in obedience according to the Mosaic promises. Walk with me and sacrifices, obeying my law, and I will bless you in the land if you choose not. And begin to worship the Baals and begin to worship the, the gods of your neighbors. I will discipline you because you are my people. I love you. And if you continue, I will drive you out of the land. But every prophet, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then all the minor prophets, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, all those say, I will bring you back. And that's where we see the new covenant promise. And as I bring you back, I will establish a new covenant with you. I'm saying, because this, this is the Bible in synopsis. This is the Bible in synopsis. This is what is happening from here on out. Everything that happens in the Bible keeps coming back to these promises God made to Abraham. And in you, all the nations will be blessed, is the blessing of Messiah Jesus, who will bring salvation to the nations. So that's why if you understand what's going on in Genesis, you understand the rest of the Bible. So this land promise is reiterated. God has changed Abram's name to now Abraham, a father of many, a father of multitudes. And now in verse 9, he institutes the sign of the covenant. All right, any questions? Are you with me? A lot of this is review, but it's just reestablishing the paramount importance of this covenant. 
All right, uh, no questions. Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as you, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, I... I hesitate to ask this, but when I ask it, I'm assuming every you, one of you understands what circumcision is. I mean, that's not a, I don't want to explain it unless you really, really want me to explain it. But, I mean, it's, it's essentially cutting the foreskin of the penis. That's what it is. But it's, it, it's important to remember something. The children of Israel are not the first to practice circumcision. The Philistines practiced circumcision. Others in the ancient world did, many did not. But what's the unique aspect of this? The unique aspect of it is that God chose this as the sign. And it has baffled people for years, hundreds of thousands of years, if you will. Why did God choose this? It's such a basic, simple thing to do. Why? Because it seems circumcision, which relates to the cutting of the foreskin of the penis, which relates to how sexual intercourse occurs, and how pro-generation, the, uh, the, the procreation of life occurs. And if Abraham is going to be the father of a whole nation of people, and all of his offspring are to also observe this sign, it is a, in, 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 I think there's no other way to conclude this, it is connected to the promise that God is going to make of Abram a whole multitude of people, a whole nation. And so circumcision then becomes the sign. And he explains in verse 12, at eight days old, you shall circumcise your boys. And that occurs today, even among, for the, as far as I know, all, whether you're Reformed, Conservative, Orthodox Jew, they all practice that. Is that a special ceremony? It is a very special ceremony. A very special ceremony. And I, maybe some of you have Jewish friends. I mean, I, I've had some over the years where I've gone to that ceremony. Uh, I've been invited to participate in it. But it's just an important um, observance of what's happening in chapter 17. There's nothing magical about it. You know what I mean? There's nothing um, mystical about it. It's just, and this is like every sign, every time an eight-day-old boy is circumcised, it is to remind his family, his father, his mother, all of the relatives, and it's always a big family event, and then all Jews in the synagogue of that covenant relationship between God and the Jewish people. Now, what has happened in Western civilization is, regardless of this idea of it being a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, for medical reasons, generally speaking, for medical reasons, much of Western civilization has circumcised their boys. It's just a very common practice. My son was circumcised when he was eight days old. I was circumcised, not when eight days old. I don't remember when I was circumcised. But the point is, circumcision is a practice that is common throughout the world, historically and today. But Genesis 17, it has a very special significance for Jewish people because it is a sign of their covenantal relationship with God. From the medical aspect, then, the, this, uh, there's a book called None of These Diseases, 
And uh, the hygiene that you can achieve after you're circumcised. And so God may have been saying, we're going to have this lineage going. We're going to, we're going to increase the chances of them being healthy. Also, the eighth day uh, of a child's life is when the coagulation factors reach their maximum point. So the bleeding will be minimal. Mm, I've heard that, yeah. <coughs> so did... As people will use this in the past to minimize women, is that is it because they don't have like I mean there's yeah like, you you don't well some bizarre things that go on in Africa and among certain Muslim groups they do circumcise girls which is a horrible thing but that has that has nothing to do with this there is no and I don't think Matt it's in any way related to. Um, um, preferring boys over girls per se, uh, this act or this practice or this covenantal sign doesn't have anything to do with that particular. But um, it does seem reasonable, although the text does not specifically say it, it does seem reasonable to conclude circumcision of the male penis is related to the reproductive act and you know, reproduction offspring and so on and again it's just life comes from God and this promise of a whole uh, host of people a whole multitude of people is tied to the act of reproduction and that is perhaps the reason God chose this every time you um, well anyway I could go through this I'm, I'm not going to go through that but anyway so that's the act that's the sign that's the covenantal sign Okay? Well, yeah, Ed. Then, I guess I don't know about this. Then, so then Ishmael probably wasn't circumcised and they circumcised him? Who, who was? Ishmael. Ishmael? And That's that, correct. And, and all... Muslim religion? Well, uh, Muslim religion does practice circumcision. It's very important to them. Islam, circumcision is very, very important. Yes. And the... Uh, as you will see in this next uh, section... The next couple of verses. Everyone in Abraham's, Abraham's household was circumcised, Ishmael. including Abraham and, and Ishmael. I mean, everybody was. So it's a very significant um, sign of obedience to what God has declared here. And Abraham at age 99? Yeah. Ouch. That might have been a little painful for him. I don't even and um, they wouldn't, this is obvious, but I'll maybe say it nonetheless. And they would not have had the surgically clean <laughs> scalpels that my son, when he was circumcised, uh, I'll never forget when that happened. Because, you know, you, you, you believe it's the right thing to do. It's medical thing, hygiene and all that. But that was hard for this little tiny baby. And he cried and it was, oh, my goodness. But anyway, let's continue. <clears throat> He didn't hold that against you. <laughs> he has never said he did. Verse eight, 12, he, when he's eight days old, you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, that would be servants, slaves. We talked about that. Both he and is born in your house, and he was brought with money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Again, that that. Very important phrase, everlasting covenant. 
that God's made. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, I mean, verse 14 is just stating again, that's the sign of the covenantal relationship. Now, let's fast forward quite a bit to 1 Samuel chapter 17, where David uh, joins his family in the, the situation outside of Bethlehem where Goliath is challenging, that great Philistine giant is challenging Israel. Saul is king. Do you remember what David says? Why are you afraid of that uncircumcised Philistine? Why, why did David put it that way? Because Goliath's outside the covenant. What are you afraid of him for? We fight for God. And you know, you know the story. And David, this incredible act of courage of this long, young shepherd boy, he had the right idea. He is outside the covenant. He's outside of this covenant relationship. What are you afraid of him for? Don't fear Goliath, fear God. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of language. So there isn't anything mystical or magical about circumcision except one thing. God's declared it's a sign. And that's how you're to look at it, Israel. It's a sign of your covenant relationship with me. And so this is now another, we, we, we've gone through a series of steps. Let me review the steps. Genesis 12, and it's reiterated again and again, God makes the promise, land, seed, and blessing. In chapter 15, God cuts the covenant with Abraham, making it an unconditional, unilateral, binding covenant on him. Now, chapter 17, God institutes a sign of that covenantal relationship. So God is progressively revealing and deepening more and more elements of this covenantal relationship. Got it? Two of you have gotten it. The rest of you, you're not sure. Okay, I'm assuming you're with me. All right. <clears throat> Finally, we're at a point where God is almost ready to fulfill the covenant promise of a son, a covenant son. Verse 15. And God said to Abram, As you, for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarai is an old Akkadian name for princess. Sarah is a Jewish name for princess. Same meaning. You just change one letter. But for purposes that seem only to be her name is different, just like your name is different, because this covenantal promise is about to be fulfilled through Sarah. She will give birth to the son. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall be become. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, what what happens here? Then Abram fell on his face, an act of worship. And he laughed. Somehow that seems like a disconnect. Fell on his face. Worship, deference, allegiance, loyalty, devotion to God. And he laughs. Your Bible says he, 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 laughed. he laughed. He laughs. Yeah. In verse 17. Mine says that he just questioned the Lord. 
He said, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? That's right. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Gives you an idea. The 190. That... So how should we process this idea, this action, this response of Abram, following on his faith, and laughing? Doubt? Joy. Is he mocking God? <laughs> or was he just happy? <laughs> or is he just... So, I mean, it's, it, it, the, the text doesn't explain this to us. It just says he falls on his, falls on his face and he, and he laughs. And saying to himself, okay, that means he doesn't say this to God. This is just what's in his mind. Shall a child be born to a man who's 100? Shall Sarah, who's 90, bear a child? So, so how do you know there's a worship component here? Meaning he could have fallen down laughing. That is that is a legitimate question. That's a legitimate inference you could draw from this. Perhaps he's falling down laughing. The, the normal use of that fell on his face is a content, a context, excuse me, of worship. That that's you know, that's kind of the response. I mean, but Jim, at, at one level, I just don't know. I don't know if this is falling down and rolling in the ground laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one I, I spent a lot of time reading and studying this because this is this is perplexing. Because the one thing you not expect Abram to do is laugh about this. I mean, it sort of catches you off guard. Wait, wait, wait a minute. God, I mean, this isn't the first time God said this to him. God has, for 25 years, God has been promising him this. And now, you know, it's like, okay, 25 years, I'm 100, Sarah's 90. This is a bit bizarre. This is, you know, I mean, I, you know, I try, I try, I always think about it. My mother is 89 years old. Can you imagine my mother becoming pregnant? And, you know, it's just. It's just medically impossible. Well, as medically impossible in 2016, it was medically impossible 4,000 years ago for a woman 90 years old to get pregnant and have a baby. But this is God. This is God. Remember, go back to how he was introduced in this chapter as El Shaddai, the God of power, the God who does supernatural things. And so it seems as if I, I, I believe this, although, I mean, I can't prove it grammatically. There's nothing in the words. I don't think Abraham is mocking God here. I don't think this is the laughter of mockery. But it is a laughter that involves a mixed emotional response. Obviously, some doubt. I think that's reasonable. That's legitimate. The absolute bizarre, unbelievable, incredible... I am a hundred. Sarah's ninety. We're going to have a baby. <laughs> oh, you know, it's that kind of. I mean, it's just it's like a natural response. But if I'm right, he falls falls on his face in the context of worship. A lot of things are just being mixed here. There's an emotion to this, and it's emo- It's incredible in the true meaning of that overused word today. I mean, it's an incredible thing to Abraham. And then he asks. Verse 16, Abram says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. 
Abraham is concerned about Ishmael because he is his son. Okay, if Sarah is going to have baby, and that's going to be the covenant child, God, you're not going to forget Ishmael, are you? I mean, Abraham loved Ishmael. It was his son. It wasn't the covenant son, but it was his son. And we'll read down in verse 20. God says, I will take care of Ishmael. So to me, you, you really see a dimension of Abraham's character here. I mean, he is, he's asking the right question. It shows his sensitivity. It shows his care. It shows his love. Despite the fact that he disobeyed God and did what God didn't want him to do in going into Sarah's maid um, uh, servant, Hagar, I mean, it's just, it's just, there's a lot going on here. It's, it's an emotional time for Abraham. And the Bible is preserving this so that we get an understanding, just like you and I. Something like this in life is very, it's confusing, the mixed emotions of it. And it, it doesn't mean that he's abandoning his belief in God. Of course not. But it's all, it's just really complicated. And so you see this man responding to this. And God says, no, but Sarah, your wealth, shall bear your son. You shall call his name Isaac. Isaac is Hebrew for laughter, which fits. Question. Yes. I'm, I backed up to chapter 16, yeah. where, where God, the angel of the Lord, found Hagar. And he said, uh, I will so increase your descendants so they will, they will be too numerous to count. Right. And, um, of course, and, and gave her the name of Ishmael mm-hmm. to use. And then he said he would be a wild donkey of a man. His hand would be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And I don't quite understand that. If you could backtrack just a little bit. Well, that's, um, that is a prophetic statement by God that uh, Ishmael is going to be a, a man who's going to create tension, strife, hostility, and all his dissension. His descendants will be people, they will create hostility, tension, and strife. Has that prophecy been fulfilled? Was that an accurate prophetic statement? Very much so. I mean, it really is, it's, um, well, anyway, that I think is the best way to understand that. Yeah, um, Ed and then Fred. What does Ishmael mean? What is, what, I mean, you said Isaac is laughing. What does Ishmael mean? Yes, Ishmael means God hears. God ail, God, God hears. Because Hagar is, you know, she was making her way back to Shur, making her way back to Egypt, which is where she was from, <laughs> and, and the angel of the Lord meets her there. And she had been, and, and God heard her cry. And so she names him Ishmael. God hears. God heard me and took care of me. Uh, I think the beauty of this is um, that this whole book uh, is relational with man to God and God to man. And he's asking this and he's reacting. And, you know, sometimes we feel like we have to be so proper in everything mm-hmm. we do and, you know, hold the hands and. And, and this is just open and communicative, and it's just, I think it's an encouragement, at least to me, and, and I, hopefully to everyone, in, the, in a sense, 
God wants us to be this way with him. Because then we strip ourselves of all the ceremonial peripheral and just communicate with him as we would communicate with him. And I think that's, I think that's beautiful. Well, and in a very honest and transparent way, which is, this is one of the unique aspects of the, of the Bible. Um, unlike many, many, indeed probably almost all books coming out of the ancient world, the Bible really does present all of these individuals in complex, emotional, warts and all kind of presentation. Their failures as well as their successes. And I, to me, that's, and that is one of the many defenses that is often made of the authenticity of the Bible, how it presents God and how it presents humans. It does not present humans as demigods, as Greek literature, as Assyrian literature, as a Gilgamesh epic. It does not present humans as just demigods. It presents them as sinners, fallible, failures, as well as great successes. As it's often said, warts and all. And here you see it with Abraham. You really see the emotion of this moment presented. And I, I, that's why I think it's, it's an important point to try to sort through all this. And it, um, someone said, maybe it was Jim, but in a way, is this a little bit like the father in the Gospel of Mark who says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I... My faith isn't as strong as, and I still have an awful lot of doubt, God. And I think that's an important aspect in my life. I, I've recommended a book many times to individuals by Os Guinness on doubt. Part of what Guinness argues in that book is doubt is a very important component of our faith. In the sense that doubt is just a natural response sometimes to the things that God says to us. Or the things that God promises to us. Or lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That God's presence is real. He will never leave us. There are times when, are you sure you're still with me, God? You know, this didn't sneak up on your blind side and catch you off guard. You didn't. You you did see this coming, didn't you? You know, and it's just natural. But as Guinness argues, our doubt is resolved as we continue to deepen our faith and trust in God as we learn more and more in the daily grind of life that this is a trustworthy, dependable, faithful God who keeps his promises to me. And not to beat ourselves up too much. If that's right. That's exactly right. Exactly. I mean, that's why doubt, that's what gives us doubt is, doubt is a positive thing in life if ultimately it's resolved in a deeper faith trustworthy guy. And he's God trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sometimes you kind of want to feel like you should be more like Joseph, though, and not have too much of that. Because <laughs> he was yeah. probably one of the yeah. most righteous guys in the Bible, wasn't he? Yeah, he there's gave the, his brothers, and yeah. he didn't yeah. fall into the trap from the woman. And, yeah. Amazing, amazing man of faith and trust. Yeah. Then there's most of us. Well, yeah. But I, yeah, that's but, what I was wondering. Like, well, would I be a better person if I was like Joseph or if I screwed up and fixed it? <laughs> I, you know, but I mean, as, I mean, would he use the right word? It's remembering that our walk with God is a process. And it's a process of walking with him. And, and none of us are there. 
All right, let's move on. Verse 20, uh, verse 15, excuse me. Or no, wait a minute, where am I here? Uh, Verse 20, it is verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. This is God's response to what Abraham had said in verse 18. He shall be the father of 12 princes. That specifically is fulfilled in chapter 25 of this book. Chapter 25, verses 12, and it will get to that in months down the road. But Ishmael's descendants, there are the princes, the key leaders that will come from Ishmael. And I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Okay, let's summarize. What is God saying? I'll take care of Ishmael, but the covenant son is not Ishmael. It's Isaac. Isaac is the covenant son, not Ishmael. Don't worry about Ishmael. I'll take care of him. Isaac is a covenant son, whom Sarah shall bear at this time next year. So one year from today, Abraham, Isaac, will be born. They have waited 24 and a half years for this. Would you wait 25 years for God to fulfill a promise? I mean, I'm, I, I meant that rhetorically. I don't mean that... And this is, this is why Abraham is presented in the Bible as the father of those who believe, the father of faith, the paradigm of faith, the model of faith. He stumbled several times, but he kept hanging on to the promise. And now God is about to fulfill that promise. So, I mean, it's just really quite amazing. So, verse 22, let's finish this paragraph. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, and he bought with his money every male among his household. He circumcised the flesh of the foreskins that very day, as God said to him. So all we're reading, is nothing terribly significant about this, other than Abraham is doing what God told him to do. Circumcise everybody in your house. Abraham's 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of foreskin. As we commented earlier, ouch, that would be hard. Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. All the men in the house, those born in the house, those bought with money from a foreigner, these were the slaves, the servants were circumcised. So all this is telling us is Abraham does what God wants him to do. The covenant sign is now established. And that covenantal relationship is deepened. All right? Yes, please. In verse 20, God says, you know, as for Ishmael, I've heard his deeds. Right. But there's no mention of a covenant for Ishmael. It's right. That's right. There is no covenant with Ishmael. There's no covenantal relationship. That's excellent. That's an excellent comment. There's no covenantal relationship between God and Ishmael. It's Isaac. It's Abraham. It's why throughout the rest of the Old Testament now, God will, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God keeps reiterating the promise through each one of these. And then we'll get to this at the end of the book of of Genesis. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob, in chapter 32 of this book, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. That's where the name Israel comes from. Jacob, the third of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is changed to Israel. And Israel means one who fights with God. 
Do the children of Israel fight with God? Yes, for 4,000 years they've been struggling with God. So it's just all this is really important information in helping to understand the rest of the Bible. We're just building on it. So was Muhammad any direct descendant of Ishmael? Yes. Did they check the lineage? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's very, very, very important in Islam uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, in Islam, they, for example, we'll get to this in several months, but in Genesis 22, when Abraham goes to Mount Moriah, the son he's willing to offer to Allah, to God, in terms of uh, Islam, Allah, is Ishmael. Ishmael is the covenant son, which is not what the Old Testament says. But that was like 2,600 years after. That's correct. That, that's that right. That, you, you nailed That's exactly what it's, 2,600 years. Yeah, that's, you must have read that book. That's really good. No, that's <laughs> not, but it is. That comes much, much later. All right, now I want to, we have about 15 minutes. I want to introduce, and if you're following your notes, chapter 18 and chapter 19 go together. And they introduce us to the whole issue of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I, I, for now, I want to stay away from the sexuality issue. We'll get to that in chapter 19. But something happens in chapter 18 which introduces us to what will go on in Sodom at the end of this chapter and then chapter 19 where God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. The first 15 verses of chapter 18 are about a covenantal meal. In the ancient world, when a covenant was made, remember a covenant is a promise, an agreement, when a covenant was made, you walk between the animals, as we discussed, and then you sealed that agreement with a meal. You would share a meal together. And it would be those animals? That's yeah, a good point. It could be the eating of those animals. But you shared a covenantal meal. That's what's happening here. Because who shows up? Verse 18 Sorry, verse 1 of chapter 18. Please notice, I'm sure all your translations have this. And the Lord appeared to him. In other words, the first word, verse 1, is and. It's coordinating conjunction. It's connecting with chapter 17. So now what we are to understand is now the Lord appears to Abram. And so this, I mean, this is really, really important because it doesn't say... It doesn't say that an angel appeared. It doesn't say that. It says the Lord. And if you, I'm sure every one of your translations have this, Lord is in capitals. That's Yahweh. The title of God is an El Shaddai here. It isn't El Elyon. It isn't Adonai. It's Yahweh. Appeared to him at the Oaks of Mamre. Now, on your map, just to remind you of this, on your map, Mamre is... Is, is, I mean, right about in the center, but that's where Abraham's living. That's where he had pitched his tent. Remember, he's a nomad. He has vast herds of animals in terms of the ancient world. But he's in Mamre, okay? Just to remind you of that, that's what that means. Oaks, these oak trees at Mamre. He, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. 
So what's the context? Abram is sitting at the door of his tent, and Yahweh shows up. Verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Because of what will happen in verse 16 and following, these are two angels plus the Lord. Show up. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. I want you to observe a couple of things. Some verbs here are really interesting. It tells us that Abraham ran. He is taking on the role of a servant. Abraham is a wealthy man. He's one of the wealthiest men of the ancient Near Eastern world. Vast herds of animals. Such, remember, we had studied that a little earlier. It got so hard to manage all this that he and Lot divided up the land. Lot went down to the south, and Abraham just said, all this is mine. And he runs, and he bows himself to the earth. And he says, O Lord, the word there for Lord is Adonai. interesting what's going on here as Abraham responds. Is Abraham aware of who this is? Does he know who this is? Does he understand who this is? If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, which I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abram is evidencing hospitality. He's evidencing and understanding to a degree of what is going on here. Now remember something. As I said earlier, in the ancient world, you sealed a covenant, you cut the covenant, you agreed on the covenant, and then you shared a meal together. So Yahweh and two angels show up. The content of the understanding of Abraham, does he know who this is? But his response indicates he understands something's going on here. These just aren't strangers that out of the blue are showing up. And so he evidences the hospitality. Verse 6, And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, Three seahs of fine flour. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to 12 quarts of flour. Knead it, make cakes. Abram ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it. Verse 8, then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared, set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So you see... Abraham, this wealthy, nomadic herder, taking the role of a servant, evidencing remarkable hospitality, preparing what would have been a significant meal. An animal, curds, milk, water, to refresh these people. Yahweh and the two angels. And Abraham stands by the tree while they ate. He's serving them. He stands, lets them eat first. 
it's really interesting. The Bible has a lot to say about the importance of a covenant meal. Let me, now I'm, I'm going to do a lot of summarizing here, but just track with me. Once the Mosaic Covenant is established and the sacrificial system is instituted, you with me so far? The Israelites would offer a burnt offering to the Lord. The burnt offering was to atone for their sin. Then they would offer a peace offering. And what was the end of the peace offering? They would share a meal. Sin has been atoned for. They're at peace with God. Now they enjoy a meal. All right, let's fast forward to Jesus. He's in the upper room. They are eating the Passover meal, another meal, which celebrated the Passover, which is how God brought the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. They're sharing a Passover meal. And he says, take, eat of this bread, which is broken for you. After they eat the bread, the Passover bread, take the cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat, drink. And do this in remembrance of me. So what's communion? What's the Lord's table? It's another covenantal meal. That is to cause us to remember everything Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room, I will not eat of this meal any longer until I do so in the coming kingdom of my Father. What does that mean? And when Jesus comes back, and sets up his kingdom, what's the first thing he's going to do with us? We're going to enjoy a covenantal meal with him. So what I'm saying to you is this, what is going on here sounds mysterious and a little strange, but one, it's in the context of the ancient world, how agreements were sealed. When the green or covenant was made, a meal was shared. In terms of how God is relating to his people, this is a covenantal meal, and it will then be broadened into the peace offering where it's resulted in a meal among ancient Israel. I mean, you see what I'm saying? This is really important. There's something in the way God wants to deal with, fellowship with, be intimate with, have a relationship with. He enjoys what you and I enjoy, the fellowship and communion and intimacy of sharing a meal together. It's the closest thing it still is today, I'm sure it is. I mean, every major holiday in, in our culture, and that's true throughout the world, there's just something about gathering together as a family and sharing a meal together. And that's why when you partake of the Lord's table, and that's hard because that can become very regimental, perfunctory, you just go through it, but try to always remember this is a covenantal meal. It is to cause me to remember what my Lord has done for me. And so, I'm sorry, this wasn't supposed to do that. And it, it's God interrupting me because it's time to quit. No, it isn't. It's my wife sending me a very important text message. We want your bread, right? Yeah, right. So anyway, I, just, I lost that. completely caused me to lose my train of thought. Oh. So anyway, yeah. So it, 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 did I lose you with all that or are you with me? This is a very significant passage of Scripture. And it is highlighting what you will just see repeated again and again and again in different formats. 
But the importance of God wanting the fellowship and intimacy and relationship with us. And it's kind of exciting. I mean, it really is. I get all excited. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this study, but anyway. All right, you with me? Any questions? All right, now, I, I still have a couple of minutes. This is the context. So this, this amazing covenantal visitation of God and the fellowship covenantal meal and all that. Then verse 9, and they said, where is Sarah, your wife? Well, that's really rhetorical in the sense that it was if they didn't know. I mean, she's right there. But where's because the point of this is God is about to fulfill the promise and Isaac's about to be born. She's in the tent. Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. That's a colloquial, euphemistic way of saying she is no longer having her menstrual cycle. She's no longer ovulating. She can't get pregnant. But who is this? This is Yahweh, who can do anything he wants. And he has chosen to intervene directly and do something supernatural that the only explanation for what's going to happen a year from now is Sarah's going to have a baby at 90 years old. And so verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself. After I'm worn out, I love that phrase, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, meaning her husband, shall I have pleasure? Which, I mean, that's just what it means. The sexual act at age 90 isn't pleasurable. I'm being, I'm, I'm sure you get it. I just want to make sure you get it. So the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? And verse 14 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard, too difficult, too wonderful? Is anything impossible with the Lord? Remember, it's Lord, it's Yahweh, self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am in the universe. Is there anything he can do? So Abraham had doubt, and even Sarah had doubt. <clears throat> of course, yeah. of course, absolutely. I mean, this is, I mean, it's understandable. She's 90. The way of women has ceased. And what pleasure is there in sex for a 90-year-old? That's what she's saying. So, I mean, this is natural. It's a natural response. But God makes, is anything too hard for Yahweh? Listen, you know this. I'm going to put it this way. God delights in doing the seemingly impossible thing. That's what God delights in doing. Every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's a miracle. God delights. Some of you around this table, I don't know your stories, I don't know your life, but some of you, what God has saved you from, the life you used to live before you came to faith and where you are now, that's true for me. The difference between me now and 1972 when I came to faith is it's a big difference. There's only an explanation for that. God delights in doing the impossible. And God, that's God. This, you and I have to constantly be remembering this. 
God can do the impossible. Sometimes he chooses to just absolutely wow us with fantastic things. Sometimes it's incremental, slow, but it's still happening. And so, because Woody is closing his Bible and folding his papers, and it is 10 minutes up, I've got to quit. Tomorrow we'll pick up again with verse 14. Somebody help me to remember that, and I start with verse 14, okay? Did I say tomorrow? I meant next Wednesday. Sorry about that. All right, this is, I hope you're getting, this is great stuff. It's, I it's love so this. Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. It it's really, it's really important stuff. So it's a good place to end. So let's pray here and we'll, we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, we ended with this magnificent statement in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer to that is obviously no. God, you delight in doing the impossible. Every one of us around this table is a miracle. Every one of us around this table could share many evidences of your miraculous workings in our lives. And we know from both our study of of the Word of God as well as our study of history and of the history of the church and so on that miracles, doing the impossible, is what you delight in doing. So that's the kind of God you are. You um, chose to allow Abraham and Sarah to wait 25 years before you fulfilled that promise, that they would have a covenant son, Isaac. You're about to fulfill that promise. It's a magnificent promise. But that's why Abraham, despite his stumblings and occasional doubts, he's a great man of faith because he believed what you told him you were going to do. And for every one of us, uh, it's natural, it's understandable for us to have doubts because you promise unbelievable things to us. But as we resolve our doubts through faith and just watch you answer, watch you take care, watch you meet our needs, watch you answer our prayers, our faith is strengthened and our doubts are resolved. That's part of the process of growing in our walking with you. Bless these men as they go their their separate ways, back to their work and all their responsibilities. In all they do, Lord, help them to have courage, help them to have faith, help them to have trust and dependence on you. And we look forward to regathering again next Wednesday. So in that meantime, may we represent you well in what we do and what we say for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.